I think I mentioned last week when I gave a talk that the first time I tried mindfulness meditation, I was 23 years old and living in Nicaragua. I was teaching English at the American School Managua. And the first time I tried meditation, uh, I gave up after five minutes, deciding that it was impossible to do. So what happened at this school is that I talked to a teacher there, and he told me about this three-month silent retreat. And uh, I was really intrigued. So I said, okay, I'm going to do that next year. Like five minutes into the conversation with him, I said, I'm going to do that next year. And then I decided if I was going to do a retreat, that it would probably be a good idea to try some meditation first. So um, I had the book... uh, a Gradual Awakening by uh, Stephen Levine, a very nice, very good beginner's book. And um, so I sat down one morning outside, my little grapefruit tree next to me and my cup of tea, and so I attempted to put some attention on my breath. And um, after five minutes, uh, I, I remember thinking, this is impossible, nobody can do this. I mean, my mind was in utter chaos. I couldn't follow half a breath before my uh, attention had wandered off into some thought. And um, it seemed pretty impossible. I did sign up for the three-month retreat anyway, I guess feeling like I probably needed a lot of work (laughs) if I was ever going to understand how to do this. Although I didn't realize it at, at that time, Um, my first meditation experience uh, is fairly typical of many meditators, not only beginners, but folks that have meditated quite a bit of time. A first insight uh, that we learn, almost always the first insight we learn in meditation is that our minds are generally more out of control than we had imagined. So prior to meditating, we may think that more or less, you know, our minds are somewhat manageable or controllable. And then when we sit down and attempt to put them on an object, put our attention on an object like the breath, um, we find that uh, contrary to our expectations, we find um, a continually changing tumble of images and thoughts and reactions and judgments and wants and dislikes and opinions and suggestions for improving the world. This uh, talk is about thought, if you hadn't realized that already. (laughs) The untrained mind is often compared to a wild monkey swinging through the trees or a zoo with all of the animals doing their own thing, or a tumbling waterfall. Uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, the late Tibetan master said, the epitome of the human condition is to be caught in a huge traffic jam of discursive thinking. And that's what it feels like sometimes in our minds, a little bit of a traffic jam of thoughts. And so we generally start meditating by assuming that we're supposed to get rid of these thoughts. And even after we've been meditating for years, 
we may uh, still have that idea. Even though we kind of know, we've been told a million times, no, you're not trying to get rid of thoughts. It's like that belief can persist. Sometimes it goes uh, kind of a little subconscious, but it's still there in how we relate to the thinking mind. And we expect that we should be able to follow a few breaths without our attention wandering, and we may even become dismayed with, with our progress in practice when, at times when that doesn't seem to happen. During that first long uh, retreat at IMS, this happened to me. I, I, I found that um, even, though, even though I'd been there a while, I still was experiencing quite a bit of thought, and the mind still seemed pretty, um, pretty turbulent to me, and I was getting quite discouraged. I decided I was a bad meditator, and um, I went into my teacher at the time and kind of complained about that, that I didn't seem to be able to know, manage these thoughts. And she was very helpful. She said to me, you know, you don't have any control over whether your mind goes off into thought. You know, the only place you have any choice is that moment that you wake up. And in that moment that you wake up, there's some choice, usually, not always, (laughs) about whether we want to indulge being lost or whether we want to do something skillful like be aware or come back to the breath, depending on what kind of meditation you're doing. And that was hugely liberating for me. I still remember it uh, 25 years later. It was like, oh, I can do that. You know, I had thought that I should be able to stop thought, and that seemed pretty impossible. I was pretty discouraged. But when I realized that all I had to do was pay attention in that moment that waking up happened. And at that time, I was going back to the breath. I was doing the Mahasi style. Um, That seemed manageable, something that could be done. Thinking is um, a huge part of our lives. And it's also a part that's very little understood. You know, most uh, as untrained worldlings, as the Buddha called them, don't actually spend much time trying to understand thought and how it works and what is it and how do we become entangled and how do we um, peacefully coexist with our thoughts. So since it's such a huge part of our existence, it seems pretty important that it's included in our field of awareness. We need to figure out how to relate to the thinking mind skillfully if we want to experience the freedom that the Buddha taught about. Seeing the chaotic nature of the mind is actually um, good awareness. We're seeing what's happening rather than lost in um, the fogginess of not knowing. The famous Burmese meditation master Upandita would sometimes ask uh, 
beginning students a trick question. He would say, how many breaths can you follow before your mind would wander? And if they said 10 or some number around there, he would think, oh, their practice isn't very good. If they would say two or three or one, <laughs> then he would think their practice was actually coming along because they're seeing what's happening. And for a lot of people, as our mindfulness of thinking, um, or as our mindfulness and awareness deepens, we actually wind up thinking that we're thinking more. <laughs> it seems to get worse before it gets better, but actually all that's happening is we're seeing what's really going on, rather than um, being lost in some kind of deluded state of mind where we, where we don't know. I hear that a lot from people. They'll say, oh, it just seems to be getting worse. But that's not true. It's actually we're becoming more aware. And so in that way, my first meditation period wasn't the disaster that I thought it was. I was actually quite aware of what was happening. It was good practice. The problem was that I thought something else was supposed to be happening. So the place that we actually often need to start with working with thoughts is to notice whether we're judging thinking. Because as long as we're judging thinking, thinking that it's wrong or something we have to get rid of, um, we're not going to be able to see clearly. It's going to be a kind of filter that's going to be uh, blocking a clear perception of what's happening. So we first need to become aware if we're judging thinking. Not making that wrong, but bringing awareness to it. So that moment that we wake up from thought, just notice, is there a little sledgehammer that comes out and is like, no, bad, bad? Is there the thought, oh, again? Is there the thought, oh, I can't believe how long I was lost? Is there any form of judgment happening. And note it, notice it. To really be able to investigate thought deeply, we, we have to be okay with it happening. So we're, we're, we're trying to lean towards acceptance of thought. It's not like you can make yourself accept it, right? But you can notice if there's judgment and you can um, bring in the intention to accept. I mean, after all, it's one of the sense experiences. In Buddhism, there's six senses. The mind is the sixth sense beyond the traditional five that we in the West think of. And thoughts are, are the objects of mind. So... Uh, it's just another sense experience arising. In concentration practices, um, there, there is a goal to suppress thought. So in purely concentration practices where we're um, 
focusing on just one thing, there is a, a, a somewhat, um, well, how active is a good question, but there, there, the, the goal is to not think or to, to, to um, suppress thought. But in mindfulness meditation, that's not our goal. In mindfulness meditation, the goal is to understand thought, to understand what it is, how it is, how we get entangled, and how we can be free even in the midst of thought. Freedom isn't the suppression of thought. Anytime you have to get rid of something, there's not freedom. Freedom is closer to the the ability to allow thoughts to come and go without becoming entangled or entrapped in them or identifying with them, as we say in um, Buddhist terminology. And so we can learn this freedom by really exploring the difference between thought when we are lost and unaware and thought when we bring mindfulness to it. I actually think thinking is fascinating. Not not the contents, but just thought and what how it functions in the mind. It's, it's quite a um, fascinating subject of, of awareness. So the, the first thing we'll notice, let's just look a little bit at thinking without awareness, or thinking when we're lost in thought. We'll notice that, first of all, we have a very strong tendency to believe what our minds say when we're lost in thought. So we become absorbed in the stories of our mind and we believe them. We actually think they're real when they're happening. If we're not aware and kind of the most unaware, you'll be sitting here having a fantasy and it's actually like it's really happening, right? That's how absorbed we can become in the stories of our mind. So it's like we're living in a kind of virtual reality or an artificial world. Or sometimes people call it a substitute world when we're lost in thought. We even believe thoughts that if somebody else were to say them to us, we would immediately know that that's ridiculous, right? But when we're lost and um, identified with thoughts, we'll believe them. So without awareness, a phenomena, um, many of you probably heard of this, a phenomena known as papancha happens. And uh, I like that word, papancha. And papancha is a Pali word, and it, it means proliferation. And it's pointing towards that um, capacity of the mind to free associate and to kind of get lost in a train of thoughts. Sometimes I compare it to a snowball going down a hill. You know, at first it's small and then it gathers steam and gets bigger and bigger and bigger in our minds. 
There's a story of a yogi who, or not a yogi, just a person living in a cave who drew a picture of a tiger on the cave. And the picture was so lifelike that he became scared of the tiger, believing it was real. We do something like that in our minds. We paint tigers in the cave of our minds, and then we believe they're true. In one way, this um, capacity is, uh, is a mark of the creative capacity of the mind, this ability to um, associate and um, take one thing and go somewhere else with it. So it can, it's, a, in, it's, uh, it's a great creative capacity. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, it has a lot to do with um, our survival, right, as a species, that we can be that creative. But without awareness, this capacity can easily lead to suffering. Many of you, or I shouldn't say many, probably some of you have had an experience similar to you're on retreat and uh, you feel some pain somewhere in your body. And um, through some chain of, of thoughts, before we're aware of it, we've decided that we have some kind of rare and inoperable cancer. <laughs> That's what happens when we're not aware of this quality of papancha. It's a little story from um, one of these books that uh, they did with the Dalai Lama on emotions. And a, a teacher named Matthew Ricard said, My teacher told me a story about a former warrior chief in eastern Tibet who had forsaken all his martial and worldly activities and gone to a cave to meditate. He stayed there for a few years. One day, a lot of pigeons alighted in front of his cave, and he gave them some grain. But he was, as he was watching, the host of pigeons reminded him of the legions of warriors he had had under his command. And that thought made him remember his expeditions, and he again grew angry, thinking about his former enemies. These recollections soon invaded his mind, and he went down to the valley, found his former companions, and went back to war. That's what can happen with papancha if we're not aware. The mind without awareness of thought can be an unruly thing indeed. So when we're lost in thought, we create these universes and we identify with the thoughts, which means that we believe them, um, we get stuck to them. So we get stuck in the stories or judgments, opinions, fantasies. So we create these universes that we then inhabit. Many times painful, but not always. Sometimes they're fantasies. Well, but the fantasy, but there's a pain in the fantasies too of, of of the disconnect, right? The disconnect with reality when we're lost in these stories. One of my favorite quotes about thoughts is by Mark Twain. He said, My life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. 
So these unconscious worlds that we inhabit when we get lost in papancha, they're based on um, past conditioning, fears, attachments, habits, old perceptions. They're not based on present reality. A lot of thought is just recycled. I read recently in a psychotherapy magazine said that uh, psychologists have estimated that we have between 60 and 70,000 thoughts a day and that 99% of them are the same as the thoughts that we had the day before. (laughs) Not so fresh. And so without awareness, they're, 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 we get caught on these like hamster wheels of thought in our minds. They go around and around, the same ones. But we can, what we can do with mindfulness and awareness is we can start to get interested in this. And even interested in how we get caught. I'll tell you a story about me on retreat a number of years ago, I, um, I learned a lot about this. I was sitting a long retreat up at IMS, and um, at the same time, my ex-boyfriend was there, and he had broken up with me a number of months prior to the retreat, but it had been quite painful for me, and it wasn't quite healed. And so one day, as I was perusing the bulletin board, as one will do <laughs> on a long retreat at IMS, <laughs> I, um, I noticed a note in handwriting, uh, his handwriting, addressed to a woman on the retreat that I suspected that he was uh, now involved with. And um, I got quite upset. My mind really spun out. Uh, you also probably know about when you're on a long retreat and little input can get quite exaggerated. So. I told myself that he had a new girlfriend and that I was unloved and alone. And um, a volcano of unpleasant thoughts and emotions uh, erupted and overwhelmed my mindfulness. And And I suffered a lot. I kept replaying this scenario over and over again. I would, you know, see the note in my mind and then I would have these thoughts and these emotions and I created quite a world. At a certain point, I decided that I was suffering way more than I wanted to and that I had to do something differently. So I decided to get really interested in this. I said, I'm going to just get really interested in what's happening. And so I started to notice how the process would unfold. I would notice first there was a flash in my mind, seeing the note, And then there was a series of thoughts and emotions that followed an entirely predictable pattern. It went down the same road, you know. So I would start watching it doing this. And at first, you know, like I said, at first I was identifying with the thoughts, right? Before I got interested, I I was getting really lost. I was identifying with the thoughts. I was suffering a lot. And then as I started to pay really close attention, I started to watch this pattern unfold. And then it started to happen faster and faster. And after about a week, it took about a week, but after about a week, it would go image, and the whole thing would be done in 10 seconds. It was, you know, it was just fascinating to watch like how it would just move through the whole thing. 
So I was no longer identifying with them. They were just passing through. It wasn't a problem. It was amazing. Then after the retreat, I asked my ex about the note. Um, and this is where it got very interesting. He said he hadn't written one. <laughs> I had created this entire world out of nothing. This is what the mind without awareness does. Another story about um, mindfulness of thought. This is from um, Ajahn Brahm, from, uh, who ordered, I think it's who ordered this truckload of dung. It's the name of the book. I learned the priceless lesson that the hardest part of anything is thinking about it in my early years as a monk in Northeast Thailand. Ajahn Chah was constructing his monastery's new ceremony hall, and many of us monks were helping with the work. Ajahn Chah used to test us out by saying that a monk would work hard all day for just one or two Pepsis, which was much cheaper for the monastery than hiring laborers from town. <laughs> the ceremonial hall was constructed on a monk-made hill. There was much earth remaining from the mound, so Ajahn Chah called us together and told us that he wanted the remaining earth moved around to the back. For the next three days, working from 10 a.m. until well past dark, we shoveled and wheelbarrowed that great amount of earth to the very place that Ajahn Chah wanted. I was happy to see it finished. The following day, Ajahn Chah left to visit another monastery for a few days. After he left, the deputy abbot called us monks together and told us that the earth was in the wrong place and had to be moved. I was annoyed. Yet I managed to subdue my complaining mind as we labored hard for another three days in the tropical heat. You can guess where this is going. Just after we had finished moving the heap of earth for the second time, Ajahn Chah returned. He called us monks together and said, Why did you move the earth there? I told you it was to go in that other spot. Move it back there. I was angry. I was livid. Can't these senior monks decide among themselves first? Buddhism is supposed to be an organized religion. <laughs> but this monastery is so disorganized, they can't even organize where to put some dirt. They can't do this to me. Three more long, tiring days loomed ahead of me. I was cursing in English so the Thai monks wouldn't understand me as I pushed the lead and wheelbarrows. This was beyond the pale. When would this stop? I began to notice that the angrier I was, the heavier the wheelbarrow felt. One of my fellow monks saw me grumbling, came over and told me, your trouble is that you think too much. He was right, of course. As soon as I stopped winging and whining, the wheelbarrow felt much lighter to push. I learned my lesson. Thinking about moving the earth was the hardest part. Moving it was easy. To this day, I suspect that Ajahn Chah and his deputy abbot planned it as it happened from the very start. So what happens when we turn our awareness towards thought itself? The place of most interest in relating to the thinking mind is that moment when we wake up and realize that we've been lost in a story in our minds. 
And that moment of waking up gives us a chance to explore this process of the thinking mind. So we can turn awareness at that moment. We can turn awareness to thinking and notice what happens to the thought the moment that we wake up. Does it disappear? Does it continue? How strong is a thought when we aren't aware of it? How strong is a thought or how powerful is a thought when we bring awareness to it? Rather than seeing thinking as a problem, we can become interested in it, curious about how this process unfolds. So when we bring awareness to thought in this way, we start to understand its nature. We start to see that thought is very uh, fast, it's very ephemeral, that it comes together because of conditions, and when conditions change, it changes. We see that its apparent power comes from our attachment to it, not from its inherent nature. A story from Zokni Rinpoche, he says, These discursive thoughts come and go, come and go, but this is nothing. It's just the nature of the journey. In fact, it's just like a highway with a lot of cars going backwards and forwards on it. You couldn't hold on to the cars even if you wanted to. And likewise, our mind has a lot of discursive thoughts coming and going all the time, and you can't hold on to them either. The rising of discursive thought is just the natural quality of the mind. If thoughts arise, it is not bad, and if thoughts do not arise, it is not good either. If you get lost in grasping at them, that's no good. If you do not get lost in grasping at them, that is good. If you want to know what is good and not good, it is not whether thoughts arise or not, it's whether you grasp at them or not. Appearances appearing or not appearing is beside the point. In brief, whatever comes up in the mind is all right. The point is to be free of fixation and grasping. For example, if you think, I am going to kill Zogni Rinpoche, that is nothing in itself. But if you get involved in a heavy train of thoughts in which you fixate on those thoughts, then that, then that is not all right. <laughs> It is the mind's quality to produce thoughts, and it will produce some truly rotten thoughts and some truly wonderful thoughts. That's the whole of samsara, isn't it? So the thought isn't the problem. It is owning the thought that is the problem. As we get less... um, Averse to thinking, well, actually, maybe notice that um, more horrible thoughts arise. That's been my experience over years. You know, it's like I think I filtered so many thoughts before. And then when I quit um, 
filtering quite as much. I would have, you know, I'd start noticing, wow, look at that thought. Ooh, <laughs> that's pretty intense. <laughs> you know, maybe judgments of people or, or uh, thoughts of hatred or something like that. And um, I actually find them just kind of entertaining now for the most part. It's like, wow, whoa, that one was, hmm, what a doozer. <laughs> we don't have to take it seriously. We don't have to um, grab onto it. So once we become aware of thinking, um, we have some space in our minds to decide how to relate to thoughts skillfully. So that moment that we wake up, it's, it's a really powerful moment. We should never underestimate the power of that moment because it brings in some choice. It brings in clarity. At the very least, we can remember that it's just a thought and that we don't have to believe it. That's, that's powerful. So rather than berating ourselves at that moment that we wake up from being lost in thought, um, we can actually uh, celebrate that moment. It's a moment of awakening. And each time that we wake up, from a thought, we're learning how not to get hijacked by our own thoughts. So each time we wake up out of a thought, we're strengthening our ability to be present, to be free of entanglement in an imaginary world. So it's like uh, building the muscle, building the muscle of wakefulness every single time that we wake up. So as I said, when we have that moment that we wake up with thought, then um, there's one thing of investigating like the nature of thought and understanding thought, but there's also at that point room for choice and understanding what kinds of thoughts are helpful and what kinds of thoughts are not, what kinds of thoughts are wholesome, what kinds of thoughts are not. What thoughts are worth acting on, what thoughts are not. So we can choose at that moment to water certain kinds of thoughts, wholesome, helpful thoughts, thoughts of compassion, love, equanimity. And we can refrain from watering other thoughts, thoughts of anger, hatred, greed, The Buddha said, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into character, no, the deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought in its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. And so we do this from um, a place of wisdom rather than a place of aversion. We, we see with clarity what kinds of thoughts are useful. And so when I have a thought of hating or a thought of um, 
judging. When I have awareness, I can think, I can see, oh, that's not a, a thought that I want to water. That's not a thought that I want to encourage and, and uh, get papancha, all involved in papancha with. And when I have a thought of care and generosity, I see, oh, yes, that's the kind of thought that I want to um, develop. That's a useful thought. So that moment when we wake up, we have choice. We can um, see what's useful. Here's an inspiring story. This is from um, The Inquiring Mind, and Jack Cornfield is talking. He says, A young man from the tough East St. Louis streets who had left his gang was introduced to Buddhist practice at one of the men's retreat I co-lead. When both a close buddy and then his ex-girlfriend were shot and killed, his old friends pressured him to take revenge. He had to get a gun. These dangerous thoughts would have led him to kill and then be killed on the streets or in prison. He knew that he had to stop thinking this way. At the retreat, I gave him a skull necklace from Tibet used by monks to remind themselves to live wisely in the light of death. We talked about the fierce initiation of one who faces death and chooses life. At first, he wasn't sure he could go on. In the gangs, most young people cannot picture living past the age of 20. He had to change. So using the Buddha's instructions on the removal of unhealthy thoughts, I offered him training to change his thoughts. I will live became one of his new intentions. I will save the lives of young kids was another. Through this practice and the practices of mindfulness and compassion, he learned to transform himself step by step. With the support of a strong community, five years later, he has become a father and a leader for youth. The transformation of thought, a skillful means that a person can take on as a key practice, can reorient an entire life as it did for this ex-gang member. The Buddha gave a whole number of techniques for working with um, unskillful or unwholesome thoughts, and one of them is substitution. So uh, if a thought's not useful, you can substitute it with a more useful one. So in this case, substituting the thoughts of killing with the thought of I'll live or I'll be a leader for others. There's actually five techniques he gave. I don't know if I have time to go into all of them. Hmm. Time flies when we're having fun. Another one is um, shifting the attention. So if we have um, really unskillful or unwholesome thoughts overwhelming us, sometimes just being mindful of, of thinking isn't enough. We need to bring in some other techniques like the substitution here that the Buddha suggested. Or... Um, Shifting the focus of attention, the Buddha said this is like meeting someone on the street you don't want to talk to, you look away and you don't get involved with them. <laughs> so so and not involving ourselves with unwholesome thoughts, placing our attention elsewhere, like on the breath, for example. Another um, technique he gave is a recognition of discomfort so that when we have thoughts that are unwholesome, that we can um, actually feel 
within ourselves that that's um, an unpleasant experience and that that can motivate us to drop them. He says it's like a person running with a rock in their shoe, that you feel it and then uh, want to take it out. The last one's a bit intense. It's a suppression. He said that it's better to crush unwholesome thoughts by suppression rather than carry them to their unpleasant end. And this can actually be true at times. I mean, if you really have a thought that's going to lead you to action that is just not... I do this sometimes when I'm about to argue with my partner. <laughs> you know, it's like you want to say something, right? It's right there. You want to... And then it's like... No, I'm not going to do it, <laughs> you know. And it's like sometimes it's like you really have to like get kind of firm. It's like, no, I'm not going there. The Buddha said it's with his teeth clenched and his tongue pressed against the roof of his mouth, he beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind. A little intense. But sometimes if it's a thought that's going to cause harm, might be the right thing to do. But it's coming from a place of wisdom. See, there's difference between coming from a place of aversion and just coming from a place of wisdom that this isn't helpful. So meditation... um, teaches us that what's most important with, with uh, working with the thinking mind is how we're relating to thought or what's the relationship of thought. A number of years ago I had a retreat where I spent um, nearly a week relentlessly judging other people and it was pretty... Uh, non-stop when, you know, mostly when I was moving around the center, but, um, you know, I was judging people for their clothes and how much food they took and how they walked and what kind of shoes they had. And, you know, it just, it was really quite um, endless. And um, I was getting quite distressed with this, really upset. So I went into a meeting with my teacher expressing my distress. And uh, he said something very simple, but he just said, you know, It's just a thought. And there's a lot of wisdom there. It's just a thought. And I realized that the power of these thoughts came from my aversion to them, which is a form of attachment. It's a form of identification. That there was a way I was believing these thoughts and getting, um, believing in the power of them. And so uh, it started to turn. You know, I started to see, oh, it's just a thought. Judgment arises, it's just a thought. And we can see the difference between a judgment that we believe and we're lost in and a judgment that just arises. And uh, certainly I still have judging thoughts arise, but more, more often I'm able to say, oh, it's just a thought. And then I don't have to believe it. I don't have to believe that it's really important what I think about how they dress or whatever, you know, the judgment might be, what political party they belong to or, you know, whatever we come up with. It's not a problem. 
So if we don't believe our, the thoughts in our, in our mind, there's no reason to get distressed about them arising. So another thing that happens over time as we bring awareness to thought, we start to um, become aware of unconscious thought patterns that really shape our lives that we weren't aware of. One yogi said to me recently, he became aware that he has this thought, I must be right. That whatever situation, I must be right. It's like, that's, that, that's going to cause some suffering, Right? But he didn't know that that was operating. And then when he could start seeing it, there's, there's a potential for um, not getting lost in these patterns. One time in the lunch line at IMS, uh, I knew that it was always hard for me to be aware in the lunch line. Many people find it to be a challenging place for awareness. And... Um, One time I was fourth in line. It was, again, during a three-month course, so there was a good hundred people there. And the thought that went through my mind that I saw was, there's not going to be enough for me. I was like, wow. You know, this was like an unconscious pattern. It really opened me up to an unconscious pattern of of thinking that I wasn't going to get what I needed. Now fourth in line with a hundred people eating, you know, it was probably likely that I was going to get what I needed, right? So it was like, oh, there's not enough for me. Fascinating. It's great when we start to see these kinds of thoughts because the actual, the fact that we can see the thought shows that identification is loosening, at least some. When the identification is really strong, we don't even see the thought. It's the world we live in. Sometimes with these kinds of thought patterns that are really tenacious and kind of deep, deeply conditioned, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, um, I'll just say to myself, this is a story I tell myself. It's a way of kind of starting to create some some space and not um, identifying with these thoughts. This is a story I tell myself. Another interesting area of investigation with thoughts is um, seeing how they arise out of our perceptions and that our perceptions actually... uh, aren't so trustworthy. And so investigating this relationship between our perceptions and our thoughts. Last summer I was doing a retreat um, out west. And one day I was sitting on the deck and uh, I heard this kind of low tone um, coming from the fields below. And I thought, oh, it's a cow mooing. I like cows. This is great. I'm meditating and I get to listen to cows mooing. And then later I heard the sound again and um, I thought, no, it's not a cow. It's chainsaws. They're cutting down the forest down there. This is really upsetting. 
I don't like it. I don't like that they're cutting down the forest. And then what was really interesting is I watched my mind. I really wanted to know, was it a cow or was it a chainsaw? And it was like I saw my mind. I wanted to know this because I wanted to know what kind of world I was going to create. You know, I wanted to know like how I was going to relate to this thing. And I only felt I could know how to relate to it if I knew what it was. You know, and then obviously what was only really happening was sound, hearing, right? But um, it was really quite interesting to watch, the, you know, the mind with this conjecture and um, trying to create a secure world based on thought. Was it a cow? Was it a chainsaw? I think it was a chainsaw. <laughs> For when I was down there later. <laughs> so as we relax identification with our thoughts, our attachment to our thoughts, we actually are free to engage in a deeper exploration of the nature of the thinking mind. And we can really get quite um, interested in the capacity of the mind to think and our attachment to thinking and the freedom present in non-thought. So one place we can start to pay attention is, are there any gaps between thoughts? Or what happens when we become aware of thought? Is there a gap at that moment? You know, when we wake up out of a thought story, is there some kind of gap? Is there a period when there isn't thought? What's that like? And sometimes in, a, in the kind of gap between thoughts, we'll experience a kind of spaciousness that um, is free of that kind of entanglement of the mind. But that's not always what I experience or what people all experience, you know. That's what traditionally we're supposed to experience. But, but people have all kinds of experiences at that moment. Sometimes people might feel um, panic or sadness or grief. Who knows what you'll experience? And if we don't have a pleasant experience in those gaps, that doesn't mean we're doing it wrong or that um, it should be some other way. It just is what it is, but we can become curious. Because if we can't rest at all in those gaps, we're not going to know deep relaxation. So we can kind of be curious about those gaps and what goes on there exploring it. We can also get interested in how thought um, creates the sense and story of ourselves. You know, as, as, as thought creates uh, um, universes in the mind, it also creates the universe of self. And if we pay attention, we'll find that most of our thoughts have a key star player, me. (laughs) And it's usually a pretty nice me that we try to, um, as I said earlier in the talk, it's a pretty nice me that we try to 
arrange. And so we actually spend a lot of energy suppressing certain thoughts and encouraging other thoughts that make a, um, a very agreeable me. And um, it's really interesting to, uh, when we notice that we start to relax that need to have a highly favorable me always presented to ourselves, <laughs> that, that we will find a, um, a wider variety of kinds of thoughts coming in. One last thing and then we'll have to end. Um, The other place where we can look at thoughts and our sense of self is like how our thoughts create a solid sense of self, how they create an enduring sense of self. So we use thought in our minds to create um, a sense of solid self, hiding the reality of self as this changing fluid emerging and disappearing sense experience, right? We're not sure if we can handle that much emptiness. And so thought uh, fills it up, creates a me that I can count on. Don Juan of the famous um, Carlos Castaneda book says, you talk to yourself too much. You're not unique in that. Every one of us does. We maintain our world through our inner dialogue. A man or woman of knowledge is aware that the world will completely change as soon as they stop talking to themselves. So I'm interested in um, exploring how thought, we use thought to protect ourselves from the vulnerability of living in um, an ever-changing world, which also means an ever-changing self. It makes the world safe and known and secure, and it has a high price for doing that. And the price is, is a narrowing and a sacrificing of freshness and a sacrificing of spaciousness. So not to make it wrong, but we can get curious to to see this and to see how it happens in our own experience. Is this too esoteric or is it making a little sense? (laughs) Over a number of years, um, one of my practices is, um, and I do this mostly when I walk in the woods, and... uh, I make some attempt to be mindful when I walk in the woods. Um, and so sometimes I'll, you know, I'll catch myself lost in thought. And, um, and, and you know, it'll often be just some kind of really needless thought, you know, rehashing something that happened that wasn't even that important or planning something or just a thought that's not really so, neat and so necessary. And so what I'll say to myself when I wake up is that moment I'll say, why think? You know, and it's not a question, it's a koan. It's like, why did I do that? You know, like what, what, why does the mind do that? You know, why does it think? I'm really curious about this.
And like again, I said, it's not like I think about it, but I'm, I, but I watch it. And so then it's like, you know, then there'll maybe may some time where it's there's not so much thought, and then it's like, why think? Sometimes it's just chatter, you know, and it's like the chatter is to reinforce a known and manageable Rebecca. That, that's basically what it's doing. That's all that's happening. And it's not like that's wrong or bad or a problem. It's uh, actually interesting. And to see it, it's like maybe there's space for, maybe I don't need to do that. And as we increasingly trust our practice and our experience of life and the strength of our um, equanimity, I think we can start relaxing the boundaries of thought or relaxing um, this kind of need to think. And we can explore the world from a place that um, is fresher and freer, more open-ended, more spacious than that known world that we keep creating over and over again with thought. So in our meditation practice, we learn to relate to thoughts without being troubled by them. And then through this acceptance, we allow our attachment to thoughts to lessen. And then freed from uh, that attachment to thought, we can connect with the world with more uh, flexibility and openness and spaciousness. So ending with a a bit from the Song of Mahamudra, Tilarepa, I think it's from Tilarepa. At first their minds tumbling like a waterfall. In mid-course, like the Ganges, it flows on slow and gentle. And in the end it is like the great vast ocean. So waterfall, river, ocean. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.